Let me begin by asking all of us a question. Where are you placing your faith, your love, and your hope for peace and security? Where are you placing your faith, your hope, your love for peace and security? Well, friends, we jump back into our study of the letter to the local church there in Thessalonica this morning. Uh, We started our study back in 1 Thessalonians way back in September. We took a six-week break to consider the gifts of Christ at Advent. This morning, we're going to be considering chapter 5, 1 to 11. You'll want to make sure and pay attention to that. If you're new to the life of this church or maybe new to church in general, you're going to want to have the Bible open, and I'm just going to walk right through it. Uh, You need to make sure that I'm saying what the Bible is saying and not coming up with it on my own, going above it or below it. Uh, This church, though, we're going to kind of orient ourselves to 1 Thessalonians. It's been a little while, and so let's just reorient into what we have considered already from 1 Thessalonians. This church that Paul is writing to was started by Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. You can see that in the very first verse of the letter. Uh, They're the ones that started this church. You can read about how this church started back in Acts chapter 17. Uh, there, what happens is, is Paul is on his second missionary journey. He's going around. He shows up to synagogues and uh, to the synagogue there in Thessalonica, and he starts teaching from the Bible. And then he shares that Christ is the Messiah. He's the answer to all of the promises of God in the Old Testament. Some people there get converted to the God by the gospel, and they're believing in Christ. Some of the people in that synagogue did not. In fact, they hated the message that Paul was bringing them. And so as a consequence, what they did is they go down to the Airbnb that Paul, Savannah, and Timothy are staying at, this guy named Jason's house. Paul and the boys are not there. They drag Jason out into the uh, city there. They begin to uh, beat on him and the like. And so at this point, Paul, Savannah, and Timothy, peace out. They get out of town. Off they go to the next town. That's how this church began. And so this church that Paul's writing to, uh, as we see, is, is probably just a few months old. At the time of this writing. And if you remember that first line of the church. Or the first line to the letter to this church. In chapter 1 verse 1. Look at that again. You'll see there. That is so important. Because it orients who the church is. Guys you got to know who you are. This church needs to know who it is. And there we saw. If you remember. That they are in God the Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ. And that not only teaches us about the Trinity, God is triune, but it also instructs Christians who they are. They are in, Restoration Church is in the triune God. Like a husband and a wife are in covenantal matrimony of a one flesh union, so God is in. We are united to Christ, we are united to God, and He is in us. You can see that Paul then encourages them in chapter 1, verse 4, that they know that Paul, Sabanus, and Timothy know that they are loved by God, that this church is loved by God, because they not only believed the gospel, but Paul says in verse 4 that they believed it amidst all of the suffering for it. That's how it confirmed their truth, the truthfulness of their claim in Christ. Paul then goes on to remind them of how the missionary team came to them what they were like, what manner they were like. And this is probably because they have all these people persecuting them, telling these this little new fresh church plant, saying like, listen, these guys are teaching lies. They're not telling you the truth. I mean, look, the second things got hard, they left. So Paul's coming in and reminding them of what it was like when they came to them. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 4, that they were being affectionately desirous of them. 
that we were ready to share with you, he says, not only the gospel of God, but our own selves because you had become dear to us. In other words, he's saying we didn't just give you the gospel. We gave you ourselves because we loved you. He then goes on to talk about in chapter 3 how he's longing to see them, how they miss seeing them. That's why he says in chapter 3 he sends Timothy back to them. Timothy goes and sees that the church is doing well. Timothy comes back and reports. And this letter that we're reading is probably the letter that comes that goes back after that visit. That then gets us to chapter 4. He then starts calling them to the gospel, to live out this gospel that they believe. You can see that in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, how you ought to live and please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Chapter 4, verse 3. God's will for your life, he says, is your sanctification. So he's saying to the church, God is concerned about your holiness. You're in the gospel. God has spoken in you. You've been saved. He's given you his spirit, his will for you is that you be holy as he is holy. And then in verse 13, he, he turns to what he evidently talked to them about a lot in the few weeks that he was with them. He then turns to talking to them about the return of Christ. And there he tells them that Christ, yes, will return. And the dead in Christ will raise just as Christ will ra- rose before. When he returns, the dead in Christ will raise. And then those... Uh, that are alive at the time of Christ's return, they will rise so that, he says, so that we will always be with the Lord. That's a sweet thought, isn't it? We will always be with the Lord. And that meant to comfort them. And that then catches us up into where we left off, chapter 5. Paul here moves into some counsel on readying them for that day he was just talking about, the return of Christ, to ready them for this day of the Lord, for the return of Christ. Big idea this morning. Stay awake. It's always fun when pastors can say that. Whoa, whoa. Stay awake. Stay awake. The Lord Jesus is coming. Stay awake. The Lord Jesus is coming. That's a big idea of the passage. Take a look at chapter 5, verse 1 there. You'll see that note on the times and seasons. That's in reference to people trying to figure out when Jesus is going to come back. So what times and seasons kind of might predict his arrival. So it was believed back then by many, it was believed by many even still today, that they could kind of figure out when Christ was going to return. And Paul says, you guys don't need anybody to talk to you guys about the return of Christ, he says, because you're fully aware of his coming like a thief in the night. In other words, what Paul is saying there is, you know that you won't know when he'll come back. That's what he's saying. You're fully aware of the fact You don't know when it's going to happen. You know it's going to come, but you don't know when it's going to happen. You're fully aware of that. More on the thief in the night in a second. But guys, it's instructive for us to know that the return of Christ was part then of the formative aspects of this church. It's so interesting, isn't it? Paul's with you guys. It looks like about three weeks. And in three weeks, he's already instructed them as part of the foundational pieces of their life together. He's already informing them about the return of Christ. And this is important for us. It's instructive for us because in the next few months, guys, we're going to be thinking a lot about the return of Christ. Uh, So starting next week, we'll kind of get into some more. For about a month or so, we'll go really slow uh, through the rest of chapter 5. But then we'll dive into 2 Thessalonians. That'll start probably sometime at the beginning of March. And we're going to be thinking a lot about the second coming of Christ. 
And how could we not? How could they not be talking a lot about it? How could we not be talking a lot about it? Right? This is the end of all things. Christ has come and he will come again to make all things right. They are thinking. The New Testament apostles are thinking a lot about the return of Christ. The question is, are we? Is this something that we think a lot about? I wonder if we here in 21st century America, right? It's been 2,000 years since he left. I wonder if we here in 21st century America, I wonder if, if we, if our churches are thinking a great deal about the return of Christ. Do we, do you have the same emphasis that the apostles did, that the New Testament does about the return of Christ? I've told the story many times of preaching way back in the book of Colossians. And uh, at the beginning of Colossians 1, 3 to 5, I was studying the passage that week. And uh, there it talks about this foundational hope in heaven. And I asked all the people that I met with that week, how often do you hope in heaven? How often do you think about heaven? I was meeting with Christians. Do you know how many they said that they did think a lot about it? Almost none of them. I was probably among them at the time. And yet it is of great significance, this return of Christ, this coming of heaven. It's the consummation of all things. It's the great hope of the gospel. It's the final chapter in the story of redemption. It's where history is heading. It's supposed to be our hope. And by hope, we mean certainty. Christ returns to judge darkness and make all the earth light. Are we like the church in Thessalonica? Are we fully aware? Hoping in it, thinking about it not really needing anyone to instruct instruct us on the timing of it, but even just not needing to have us be reminded of it. Because we know not only that it's coming, that crises are coming, do we, are we so hopeful in it, so thinking about it, so prayerful of it, that we love the thought of it. That's what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. He says that Demas was in love with this present world, but he says true Christians love the appearing of Christ. They love the appearing of Christ. And so this begs, this passage then begs us to answer the question, not are you aware that the Bible teaches that Christ is returning? Not only do you believe that it's going to happen, but do you love it? Do you love the thought of His appearing? Not needing anyone to write to you because you know you're fully aware that you don't know exactly when it's going to come, but you love to think about it. Look there at verse 2. He says, You yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When people are saying that there is peace and security, then, circle this word, sudden destruction. Sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not, they will not escape. So while Paul says that they are fully aware of when the return of Christ, they're, they're, they're fully aware of the fact that they won't know when exactly he'll come back, but they do know he's going to come back. He says he doesn't need to instruct them. He still goes on to instruct them, uh, which is so helpful. I love these passages because it reminds me as a pastor, I used to think that like I had to come up with something new every single week to tell you, you know, like, all right, what's something? But Paul loves to remind things, uh, remind his church of the things that he's been already been talking about them. And that's what we're doing here. Paul goes on to remind them, to remind us that Jesus will return, in that passage, he will return quickly and unexpectedly. 
quickly and unexpectedly. Quickly meaning there won't be time upon his return, there will be there will not be time to adjust. Like labor pains, he says to a woman. So imagine this, right? Imagine a pregnant woman, very pregnant woman. She is aware of the fact that she's going to be giving birth. She's out with her husband. They're out at dinner, right? And they're there. They're sitting. They're eating. They're having a good time. Then pow, time to birth, right? Not expected. You're expected, but not expected, right? You don't, in that moment, you don't like, well, you know, maybe let's go go back home and sort of, you know, get things together and then go off to the hospital. No, you go straight to the hospital. There's no time to do anything else. You go. Right? That's what it's going to be like. Quick. No time to adjust upon his appearing. And then unexpected. Meaning, you're not knowing exactly when he's going to come back. Like that thief in the night. An illustration, by the way, that Jesus uses often, that Peter uses, Paul uses. Unexpected, like a thief breaking into the house. So imagine this, right? Imagine it's 1 o'clock in the morning and there you are and you hear something go bump in the night. Right? None of you are going, oh, yeah, it's probably a thief, right? No big deal. We, we expected him to come about this time, right? None of us do that, which illustrates the point that Paul and Jesus and Peter are trying to make. Like a thief comes in the night. You don't know. That's, you're not expecting that to happen. So in the same way, when Christ returns, he will come back quickly. There will not be time to adjust, and it will be in an unexpected time. It will be quick and unexpected. And then he goes on to say, because they, notice the shift from you to they. They, that is those apart from Christ, it's going to come quick and unexpected, and they, those apart from Christ, they're walking around, unlike the Christians that are aware that the thief's going to come like a uh, thief in the night. The non-Christians are walking around going, peace and security. Everything's fine. They're not thinking about the return of Christ. Now, again, Paul is not saying here that they're literally saying peace and security. Paul is saying that in people's lives, they will have little to no interest in or attention to or belief in the imminent return of Christ. They're not going to be thinking about it. They're not going to be interested in it. They're not even going to believe it. And if even they have some have an attention to or belief in the return of Christ, there will be some, like Jesus references in Matthew chapter 7, where they might say they believe it, and yet Jesus comes back and Jesus says, I never actually knew you. In their hearts, in other words, that while they claim to believe that Christ is Lord and he returns, in their hearts they live as though peace and security will be found here in this world. No mindfulness, no uh, sort of lives that are oriented by the return of Christ. Friends, maybe the strongest deception Satan has in his book of lies is getting the masses to believe that peace and security are found here, forgetting a day of reckoning is coming. It's one of the greatest lies that Satan gives, is to to tempt you to believe Christ is not coming back, find peace and security here. How many billions of dollars are spent every year to get people to believe that if you have enough education... If you get the right job, you find the right spouse, you throw off as many sexual restraints as you can, get enough money in the bank, buy a house, have the right amount of vacations, then, and maybe even find a kind of church that you like, then you'll have peace and security with almost no attention to the fact that Christ could come back at any moment. I mean, Jesus talks about this. Remember this, the guy that has all the crops? And what's his answer? Build bigger barns. Remember what Jesus says? Fool. You don't know that this day your soul will be required of you. 
this false sense of security, this kind of earthbound imagination, friends, is what marks those, Paul says, it marks those that are outside the faith. It's the they. It's the not you. We are the ones that should be fully aware that while we don't know when he will come, we should be fully aware and waiting for it, loving that prospect. Paul calls it darkness or drunkenness in the following verses. This, not, this mindset of not even being aware or living in relation to the return of Christ. When people are living in word or deed as though there is no real and imminent reality of the return of Christ to judge the world and to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, they are ignorant and lit in that sense by a false sense of security that there is no judgment, that this is all that there is. Whether that is their stated belief or it isn't, they say that they believe in the return of Christ, but they go on living as though there isn't one. This, friends, is representative of darkness and drunkenness. The Bible calls this foolishness because it has no awareness of the fact that Christ will return. Their lives are not oriented to that reality. That appearing has no bearing on their lives. And so the question for us this morning Does it have a bearing in your life? Is this something that you are oriented to? Do you live as though the return of Christ is this sort of science fiction or kind of religious fanaticism such that you think little about it and think that peace and security is here as the earth is? Or you say, maybe, all right, okay, I don't think it's science fiction. I don't think it's religious fanaticism. Or maybe, thirdly, do you claim to believe in its reality and yet you think little about it and think that peace and security are found here as it is? No mindfulness of the Lord's return. Friend, if you're in any one of those three categories, hear the word of the Lord and be warned this morning. Be warned. This is darkness and a lack of sobriety to the truth. And those of us who by grace, not our intellect, by grace, have been given eyes to see it. We are fully aware, right, that our lives are but a mist and Jesus' return is imminent and we will meet him. We ought to be endeavoring to live like beloved children. Guys, we ought to be endeavoring to live like beloved children whose parents have gone away on a date, right? And we're waiting for them to come back. That's what we should be like. Beloved children that love their parents, that know mom and dad are gone away, So that when they show back up at the door, we're not like, wait, what? You know, we knew that they were going to come back. And so when mom and dad come back from the date, they don't find us doing all kinds of uh, rebel rousing and the like. We should be like those that are expecting the return of mom and dad to come home, waiting for them to come home. So that when they come home, they find us uh, doing what we ought to be doing. And we looking forward to them coming back home. That's what we should be like. We know, believe, and treasure the fact that that Christ is returning. And we intend to have uh, Christ find us living favorably, living honorably when he does. And he talks about this. He talks about this notion of kind of expecting to receive Christ when, he's, when he returns. Speaking to the church there in verse 4, take a look. He says, you're not in darkness. In other words, you're not in darkness to be surprised. Verse 5, you're children of light, children of the day. We are not of the darkness, right? When the the parents come back from dinner or when the child soldier, for instance, returns home from their time on the front or when labor breaks in on the pregnant woman, we may be a little startled to be sure, but we are not surprised that Christ has come back. 
We are fully aware and ready to meet Him because we are children of light. Because Christ is light and He has given us His light. That's why we are children of the day, children of the light. Because of Christ's grace in us. So, Christian, when Christ substituted Himself for us that believe in the cross, when He substituted Him for Himself for us that believe on the cross, He transferred us from the domain of what? The domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son. John writes of Jesus in John chapter 1, in John 1, 4 to 5, that in Him, in Christ, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the darkness has not overcome it. It goes on to say in John 1, 9, the true light, referencing Christ, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This is what we just celebrated at Christmas. And then he goes on to talk about those that have trusted in Christ in verse 12 of John 1. But to all who did receive him, Christ, the light, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. That's how you receive, right? How do you receive? By believing. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave, circle that, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, in other words, not by inheritance, because of who your parents were, nor the will of the flesh, that is, not by good works, nor the will of man, that is, not by you deciding, but of God. In other words, Christian, Jesus turned the light on in your heart. Isn't that amazing? That's what he, he's the light. He's got the light. Sort of like the Christmas Eve service. It starts with the one light, hands it over, right? That's what he did. He turned the lights on. He did it because he is the light. And now he's given his light to you. Jesus says later in John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. For the one that is in Christ, you are therefore in the light since Christ is light. You are children of the day, children of light because Christ is in you and you belong to Christ. That's what that language, circle those words of and belong. Right? The language of of in verse 5 and belong in verse 8. We belong to the day. We are of the light. Guys, that is not a potentiality. That's a reality. That's a truth. It doesn't describe what could be if you as a Christian get your act together. Right? If you're like, all right, if, if I, I started my Bible reading plan, you know, and if I stick, if I can make it through Leviticus, then I'll get some light. No. You are light. If you're in Christ, you are light. It's not a potentiality. It's a reality. If you've repented and believed Christ to deal with your guilt, you've been enlightened and empowered to walk in the light as He is the light. No longer enslaved by the deceitful lies of the world that darken people to the truth of Christ in His imminent return. We know as Christians, as children of the day, we know that peace and security is not found in this world as we know it. We know that. Do you know that? Don't live in that darkness. You're a child of the day, Christian. We know that. In Christ, the one He is the one bringing peace and security in the world. Christ is the one that will bring true peace and true security in the world. We know, we believe that we love the reality of that, right? We love the reality of that thought. Because there on that day at His return, the day of the Lord, the day of His return, we will have, on that day, we will have full salvation. Paul talks about it. We have it. It's the already not yet. Already we have it. 
will have it in its sum at the return of Christ. And when he comes back, Christian, listen, when he comes back, we don't fear that day. We don't fear it. We don't fear the judgment. Verse 9. Look at verse 9. This is so key. Because upon his return, unlike those that are in the darkness saying, peace and security, all's fine. We know judgment, destruction's coming. But on that day, those of us that are in Christ, verse 9, we're not destined for wrath. We're not destined for judgment on that day. Because Christ has already judged us at the cross. Instead, we will obtain, Paul says in verse 9, we will obtain on the return of Christ, we will obtain our salvation. Full salvation. Resurrected bodies on a resurrected earth with our resurrected Savior. And it is said in verse 17 that upon that day, Christ returns, we get full salvation. 417, we will then always be with the Lord. We'll always be with Him. He died for us. He raised for us. He will return for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, what Paul means there by whether dead or alive, the moment of His return, we will live with Him. And there, on that day, is our peace and security. Not here. We are children of the light, children of the day, not children of darkness, believing that there is no judgment. We know Christ is coming, and that life and security and peace is found in Him. And so, church family, while we might be fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, and we might have no need to counsel you, like Paul, let me counsel you. Three ways, three things that Paul points to in this passage to get us ready for that day. Three things he points to. The first one that he points to here is to tell you to stay awake. So if you've been nodding off, wake up. Stay awake. He says there, don't sleep as others do. You can see that there in verse 6. Stay awake. Don't sleep as others do. Be sober to the truth. That's what he means by the stay awake. Be sobered. To the truth. Stay awake to the truth. Jesus said very famously, right, uh, that uh, wide is the gate that leads to destruction and easy is the way that leads to destruction. In other words, most people in the world, according to Jesus, there's this wide gate that leads to destruction. Most people are going to enter it and it's going to be the easiest way to get there. It's going to be smooth. And then Jesus says that narrow is the gate and hard is the way that leads to life. In other words, Jesus warns us that most people will be drunken or asleep or living in darkness, to use the language of Paul, about his return. Most people will think peace and security. He's not coming back. It's not a thing. It's science fiction. It's religious fanaticism. Or, you know, I believe it, but I don't really care about it. I don't think about it. I don't live. I just know it's true. That's going to be most of the world. They will say, as Paul says, peace and security. And yet Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 to 5, in reference to the day of his return, Jesus says in Matthew 24, you can go, by the way, read this later today. Jesus gives much more explanation about this. Matthew 24, 45, Jesus says of the day of his return, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Drop down to verse 11. And many prophets, Jesus says, and many, not some, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, in other words, immorality will be on the rise, the love of many will grow cold. The more immorality rises, the more love for Christ will grow cold. 
But Jesus says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. See, what Jesus is saying is that uh, throngs will follow false teachers, that smooth and easy way. These false teachers are going to be sort of making it easier on you. Throngs will follow them. There will be a lot of them that will come. A lot of people will follow them. They will lead many away from Christ into darkness, not into light. But they won't call it darkness. Because it's going to be deceitful. Their love for Christ and His return will grow cold as immorality runs hot. And again, people saying, peace, security. I'm safe. I'm good with God. No need to worry about this. I'm fine. And yet the gospel will spread. And those who are found loving the real Christ, those ones that love Christ in the end, they're the ones that are going to be saved. And Jesus says there will be few of them that don't listen to the lies but follow the truth. Therefore, since there is so much darkness, since there's so much false sense of security, since there's so many false teachers, Paul says, stay awake. Wake up to the truth of the gospel. Be awake. Don't be deceived. Do not be found following false teachers that lead you to believe that the imminent return of Christ and His forthcoming judgment is nothing to be concerned about. Don't believe them. Look back to 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Look at that. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says it teaches us that Jesus comes to bring wrath. That's Paul's words, not mine. That's Jesus' words, not mine. And here in our passage, 5.3, it's clear that in the return of Christ, there will be destruction. Jesus again calls it destruction. And guys, we've, given, we've been given all of these sort of precursors to the fact that God does bring destruction on the earth. We saw it in the flood. Right? We saw it in Sodom and Gomorrah. We saw it in uh, the exile of Israel. This is something God has already shown himself that he's able to do and willing to do. And none, when Jesus returns, none, it says, will escape his destruction. Again, quickly and unexpectedly. There won't be time to get right. And so one way that you know you're following deception, one way you know, am I following deception? So one way you know that you're following deception is by believing that in Christ there is no wrath or destruction. So if you believe that Jesus doesn't really have any wrath or deception, he's all love and forgiveness, that's one way that you know that you're not following the truth. You can't have, friend, this is so clear, you can't have love and forgiveness and justice if you don't have destruction and wrath. Got to have them all. And guys, I can tell you as a personal testimony, in the last few weeks, I've seen religious people, people like wearing religious garbs. I've watched this. I didn't seek it out. It just sort of showed up in different elements. I've seen it on social media. I've seen it in articles. People dressed in religious garb with these people that are not believing the gospel come to these people in these kind of Christian religious garbs asking if they're safe in Christ. Or asking them, maybe not safe in Christ, but asking them, you know, are they going to go to heaven? Or is there a hell? I've seen it numerous times just in the past three weeks where these religious professionals say that you're fine. You're safe. People that hate the gospel, people that do not, they outwardly believe it, telling them that they're safe. Telling them, as Paul says, peace and security. Folks, that's the kind of darkness and deception that Jesus warns us about. Don't buy it. 
Stay awake to the truth of Christ. Don't buy those lies of people that kind of assure people in a gentle tone that even though they reject Christ, there's peace and security. They're fine. Don't buy it. And if you've not yet come to the light this morning, you're not in Christ. You're not repenting and believing, following Him. Friend, let me invite you to do that this morning. While there's time, let me invite you to come to Jesus. Come to the light. The entire New Testament is very clear that Christ will return bodily and it will be terrible for all those who have not been born again by faith in the real Christ and His gospel. The judgment is real and it will come like a thief in the night. It will come at a moment that you won't expect and there won't be time for you to get right with Him. And listen, don't even, you, don't, you don't think, you don't believe me? Well, just take that Bible that's sitting right in front of you and just go read it and see if I'm right. Take that Bible, take it home, and see if, in fact, the Bible does talk about this. The fact that Christ is going to come, that there's going to be a, that the Bible is frequently talking about it, that it's going to be awful for those that are not in Christ, and it's going to happen, that it's real. Is that true? Don't buy my, don't take my word for it. Take that Bible home and see what it says. Jesus himself, just, I'm going to give you one verse. I've already given you a few, but I'll give you one more. John 3, 36. Jesus says, if you do not obey the Son, the wrath of God remains on you. That's the Jesus of the Bible. That's his words. And so, friends, these charlatans that try and downgrade the imminent and serious reality of Christ's judgment, they are not loving you. They're lying to you. And again, just read the New Testament. You'll see it for yourself. Don't take, uh, don't take their word for it. Don't even take my word for it. Take it for yourself. Go and read it for yourself. Don't drink the liquor of the world that makes you so inebriated that you haven't any sober thoughts for your own about Christ and his gospel. And friend, I realize that some of you might think that I'm some relic of the past, some sort of Baptist preacher at old-time revivals. I realize that some of you might easily want to dismiss me from that and say that that's the truth of me. But friend, I've given my life to speak the truth in love to you. That's why I'm in this. Just as Paul didn't come to Thessalonica to make a bunch of money on him and get out of town. I'm not here to make a bunch of money off of you. I'm here to lovingly tell you the truth. And the truth is he's returning. Are you ready? And if you don't believe it, then let's talk about it and see why. But don't just walk out of here today and say, oh, Stupid Baptist preacher, what does he know? Just believing the Bible. Come on. Think about it. Think about it. I'm not going to leave this church to be unclear about heaven and hell. I won't do it. The elders of this church will not do it. We're not going to be unclear about heaven and hell. There are throngs of other assemblies in this city. There's throngs of other cities on this street you can go to, but not this one. We're going to be clear about it. We want to get you ready for it because we love you and because we love God. Trust Christ, friend, to take your punishment and come into his light so that you're ready to meet your maker when he comes or when you go to meet him. And for we children of the day, Christians, church family, stay awake. I want you to notice that I'm not warning us of the darkness of the more predictable places that are outwardly opposing the gospel. I'm warning us of those wolves in sheep clothing. I'm saying to stay awake and don't be led into the darkness of false teachers that minimize what Paul calls destruction and wrath 
about the return of Christ. Don't join their churches. Don't read their books. Don't listen to their podcasts. I've, pod, I've, I've pastored long enough to see people picked off, not by atheism and agnosticism. I've seen it happen up close by people that appear to be more loving than Christ, softening the sharp edges of the gospel and in gentle and sweet and kind tones lead people into darkness and pick them off. It happened five years ago in this church and I've never gotten over it. I'm not going to let it happen to you as, as much as I can. The elders of this church, the members of this church, we're going to try our best to not let you be picked off by gentle people that take off the sharp edges of the gospel and the teaching, the straightforward teaching of the Bible. What Christians have believed for 2,000 years. You can't be more loving than Jesus who says his return is real and it's hard for those that are not. Stay awake. Don't fall asleep to the darkness of the deceitful teaching and living that says that everybody's okay. It's not true. Jesus says most won't be. The question is, are you? Secondly, a little bit more briefly. Okay, Nathan, how do I stay awake? I need to stay awake to the deceitfulness of the world, but how do I stay awake to the truth? Secondly, Paul tells us to put on the gospel every day. Put on the gospel. Put on the truthfulness of the gospel. That's what Paul does next. After telling them to stay awake and not fall asleep to the deception of the world, he then says in verse 8 that since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. So Paul says to stay awake by rehearsing the truth about the gospel in our lives. Guys, here it is. Faith. Look at the words. You get the whole, uh, those three words. Faith, hope, and love. Faith, love, and hope. Faith, love, and hope at the return of Christ is not in ourselves. It's in Him. Right? It's what He has done, what He is doing, and what He will do. So when you look at the verse there, look at that. There in verse 8. Our faith is not in ourselves. Our faith is in Christ. Our love is in His appearing. Remember that? 2 Timothy 4.8. Our love is in His appearing. Faith in Christ, love in His appearing. And our hope, and this is certain hope, is in the salvation that He brings when He appears. This is our peace and security. This is it. Not empty phrases, but promises purchased by Christ at the cross. And did you notice, guys, the past, present, and future aspects that Paul uses of the gospel? Did you catch that? Paul says that Christ has died for us. There's past grace, right? We, he then says, we belong, current, we belong to the day, so put on the breastplate and helmet uh, of salvation. That's present grace of the gospel. And then he says, we will, future tense, salvation, have salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's future grace. Past grace, present grace, future grace. Gospel is past, present, future. Putting these realities on by preaching them to ourselves every day is more important, guys, than brushing your teeth and putting on your shoes in the morning. I'm serious. Like, you've got to put these realities, just rehearse them to yourselves. So, for instance, if we are drowning in guilt for something we did last night or last year, thinking we are under the wrath of Christ, we tell ourselves, no, Jesus, I, I, Jesus took care of that further in the past at the cross. We rehearse that past grace. When we are riddled with fear or anxiety or we lack assurance of our salvation, we tell ourselves, I am a child of the light and I'm putting on the breastplate of faith. I'm putting on the love of Christ. 
When we worry about tomorrow or our fate in the face of Christ when he returns, we tell ourselves, I'm not destined for wrath on that day. I'll have full salvation on that day. We, we rehearse these things to ourselves every day or when guilt or condemnation comes up. Now, I don't know about you guys, but the kind of preaching that I grew up on had the gospel, if it was in the sermon at all, only had the gospel to be reserved in the past, what Jesus did in the past. And, and that's true and glorious. However, I hope you see that the gospel is more fully orbed. It's present. It's future. We've got to put on these gospel truths by rehearsing them for ourselves every single day, reminding us that, he, that we will be home with Christ. And that's going to help us through the ups and the downs and the monotonous and the joyful days of this world. To give you an example of this, uh, my family and I watched the movie Armageddon this week. You seen that movie? It's a good movie. Appropriately titled for this sermon. I was not. I didn't watch it to get ready for the sermon. Just Providence, I guess. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but we watched the movie Armageddon. Uh, the movie Armageddon. Is uh, It's about these kind of misfits, and they are very much misfits. That's kind of what makes the movie fun. These misfits, oil riggers, that are going to, uh, gonna, they're going to blow up this asteroid, all right, because the asteroid's going to come and blow up the earth, all right? And so these, ast- these guys are going to get on these spaceships. It's fiction, this, right? Uh, so they're going to they're gonna get on these spaceships, and they're going to land on the asteroid, and they're going to blow up the asteroid so it doesn't hit the earth. Armageddon, you see the title of the movie. And this movie, if you've seen it, it is full of ups and downs. Like my sons are like, oh, I mean, it's, it's really rigged highs and really low lows, and it's sad and it's funny, right? And it's got all these things. I mean, and, and, and even through it all, like even, you know, Andy's crying at certain points, even though she's seen the movie, and I'm sort of up and I'm sort of down. But listen, you know what helped me? My boys, they hadn't seen the movie, and so they're, huh, and they're, huh, and you know, they got Aerosmith playing in the background, and don't want to write all this, and everything, the whole thing, this guy dies, and that guy lives, and then they this, and then the thing's going to come, and of course, right, the master, the leader, the authority figure dies for his sinful son to save the earth. Come on, guys, the gospel's right there. Anyway, it's right there. But here's the thing. I was able to watch that movie, and I was able to get through it, maybe a little better than my wife, because I knew how it ended. I knew that they would win. I knew that the asteroid wasn't going to hit the earth. I knew they'd celebrate. I knew somebody had to die in order to make that happen. So it is for us. It works the same way. We're going to go through the ups and the downs of life. And yes, you might cry. Yes, you might get happy. Yes, you might be sad. Things are going to be hard. But we know how it ends. That should orient us today. Those are the things that we should be thinking. We know how the movie ends. Christ has already died. That orients us to today. We gospel ourselves every day. And we not only gospel ourselves, but we gospel one another. And I'll end here. You can see that there in verse 11. We stay awake, not believing the deceitfulness of the world. We preach the gospel to ourselves. And then thirdly, we encourage one another in the gospel. We preach the gospel to one another. We not only preach the gospel to ourselves. Thirdly, we preach it to one another. This is how we stay awake. This is how we get ready for the return of Christ and not be found asleep. See there in verse 11, therefore encourage one another and build one another just as you were doing. This is the third time, by the way, in this short letter he's already talked about this, encouraging one another. 
Guys, one of the other great lies of religious charlatans in the 21st century America is that the church is an optional accessory to the Christian life. That's a lie. It's true. It is true that you only need Jesus to be saved, to be saved in him. That's true. But it is a lie from the pits of hell that you don't need the church to encourage you to stay the course and get you there. The Spirit can do it. That's true. You don't need the church in a final sense. But just as God ordains the ends, he also ordains the means. And the means that he ordains is this little messed up little family right here to remind us of the gospel, to encourage one another in the gospel. Healthy, gospel-centered, Christ-exalting churches that practice meaningful church membership and have biblically qualified pastors that care for the flock of Christ, they are one of the most important ways we can find community that we need to encourage one another to stay awake and preach the gospel to ourselves. To encourage means to put courage in. What do you mean? Put courage in. By word or deed, put courage in. And guys, i got a folder on my laptop and I got a drawer in my office and I got a throng of words in my head that you've given to me to encourage me. I've got tons of them. You guys have encouraged me so much to stay the course, preach the gospel to me. And I know you guys do that to each other. Every members meeting, how do we start? How have you been encouraged in the life of the church? So-and-so did this. So-and-so told me this. Encourage one another. You put courage in. Hopefully, I've put a little bit of courage into you each Sunday. Because we all get a little sleepy, don't we? We all get a little drunken by believing the lies of the world. All of us. I do too. And so like hot coals, we come together every week and warm one another up so as to prepare us to not get cold, but to be hot. So that when Jesus comes back, we're startled. We're not surprised. We're ready. And so for those of you that are not, you call yourself Christians and you've not committed to the church, right? There's membership classes coming up. I don't know when they are, but they're coming up. If you are a member of this church and you've kind of been living on the edges of the church, that's some of you here, can I encourage you to come a little deeper into the life of this church? Commit to us. We commit to you. Community groups will start next week. But guys, listen. One of the best ways that you can encourage each other is through your dinner table. You all have those. We don't take any breaks from meals unless we're fasting, right? So use your dinner table to encourage one another in the gospel. To look at one another across the table from a beloved brother or sister when you see them starting to wander a little bit. Starting to believe a lie. Starting to kind of take on a trajectory. Look at them across and remind them that their faith, that their love, that their hope, that their peace and security is not going to be here. It's going to be there. Use your dinner table. Use the conversations afterwards. The coffee after church today. You hear somebody. You see somebody wandering. Encourage them in the gospel. And say, brother, sister, don't go there. Don't do that, man. Jesus is coming back, man. Don't go there. Don't do that. Don't talk to them. Come back. And again, I watched this happen five years ago in the life of this church. It broke my heart because I watched you guys did it. You fought for her. And even though she wandered off, you stayed the course. I thank God for you. We did what we could. And it's probably going to happen again. But let it not be said of us that we didn't try. 
because, not because it just the Bible tells us, but because we love Jesus and we love his appearing. And so, beloved, remember that, the, that our peace and our security are not here. Jesus is returning. You have no one need to teach you about when that's going to happen. We don't know. It's going to come like a thief in the night. But, guys, the more that you stay awake to the lies of the world, the more that you preach the gospel to yourselves, and the more that we preach the gospel to each other, the more that you'll be glad you, you did that 10,000 years from now when you're standing in the glow of the glory of Christ and you see him face to face.